Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And today is the fourth Sunday of the season of Lent. And as a community of faith during the season, what we're doing on Sundays is we're reading through and exploring uh, one story from the Old Testament together. And we're doing it every single week. We're coming back to the same story because it's one of those stories that is deeply complex and deeply layered. You can't just read it and then move on really quickly. You have to really soak it in. And um, when I thought about this story, I I thought it's a little bit like uh, the sculpture of David done by Michelangelo. If you've ever been to Italy and you've had a chance to see it, it's one of those things that you don't just glance at and move on. It's larger than life. It's huge. It's beautiful. It's complex. And as you get closer, you see things and you notice things. And and then you begin to walk around it and you look at it from different angles. And as you look at it from different angles, you begin to see and notice different things. And so in a sense, that's what we're doing with this story. So if you happen to be new or visiting us or you haven't been in New Denver in a while and you're sort of jumping in today, um, don't worry. Uh, we'll bring you up to speed. We're going to reread the beginning of this story again. But I'd also encourage you um, to go back and maybe listen to some of the previous messages. We've spent the last three weeks looking at the story from different angles. And you might have some questions today and we might have explored those or talked about those in previous messages. So if we jump back into the story again, let me just remind you, this is a story that comes from the book of Genesis. So this is very early in the Bible. This is way before Jesus, uh, way before there was even a nation of Israel, before Moses, before the Exodus, before all of those things. This is a story about a guy named Abraham. And here's what it says in chapter 22 of Genesis verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now, when we first read this story, it's horrifying right? It's unexplainable that God would ask this man named Abraham to do such a thing. And if that's your initial response to this, don't worry. Uh, You are in good company. We all feel that way. And in fact, um, I want to read you what two of the most famous philosophers in modern history said about this story. The first is a guy named Immanuel Kant. He was a German philosopher in the 18th century. And he said this, in some cases, Man can be sure that the voice he hears is not God's. For if the voice commands him to do something contrary to the moral law, then no matter how majestic the apparition may be, and no matter how it may seem to surpass the whole of nature, he must consider it an illusion. He goes on to say, we can use as an example the myth of the sacrifice that Abraham was going to make by butchering and burning his only son, at God's command. Abraham should have replied to this supposedly divine voice that I ought not kill my good son is quite certain, but that you, this apparition, are God? Of that, I am not certain, and never can be, not even if this voice rings down to me from heaven. So so Kant is basically saying, 
Uh, everything we do in life needs to be reasonable, it needs to be rational, it, it needs to be uh, moral, right? And if God is asking us to do something irrational, irreasonable, and seemingly totally immoral, then it cannot be God. Another philosopher's name is Soren Kierkegaard. He was a Danish philosopher, lived in the 19th century, and he wrote a book called Fear and Trembling. And in the book, he reimagines this entire story of Abraham and Isaac. In fact, he asks us to reimagine how terrible it must have been for Abraham to actually go through with this and do what God asked. And then he even invites us to picture ourselves in the story. In fact, he even pictures uh, a preacher standing up and and sharing this story, reading this story uh, to an audience and and telling everyone in the audience about what this story is asking Abraham to do. And he even imagines people in the audience like you, maybe even parents who have sons and daughters thinking, what would I do if this was about me? And then he says this, Suppose a man who hears a sermon about Abraham goes home and wishes to do as did Abraham. For his son is his most precious possession. If a certain preacher learned of this, he would perhaps go to him. He would gather up all of his spiritual dignity and exclaim, You abominable creature, you scum of humanity, what devil possessed you to wish to murder your son? I share what these two giants of sort of intellectual Western philosophy and history say about this story, because I think the outrage that they communicate epitomizes the outrage that we all feel. What God is asking Abraham to do is irrational. It's seemingly immoral. And if we place ourselves in that story, none of us would do it. In fact, all of us would reject the God of this story. Today I want to push in a little more and suggest that perhaps there's a bigger perspective that we need to consider. Perhaps there's a broader context we need to examine And that if we don't move past our initial outrage at this story, if we don't do some of the the work to explore the broader context, then we're always going to be stuck with, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't seem right, why would God ask this? And it's not even just about this story. It's about what often happens in our lives as well. How many of us face circumstances where we say, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem right. Why would God allow this? And so today, I want to give you a wider perspective. We'll revisit this story specifically, and and I'm not going to be able to resolve all of the tensions or answer all of the questions. But I can give you a wider perspective that I think will help us to see and understand this story a little bit differently and perhaps begin to see and understand what God is up to in our own lives a little bit differently. So this wider perspective really just includes three important contexts. And the first is the context of sacrifice. You see, when we read, sacrifice your son, what we hear is murder your son. Or as Kant said, burn and butcher your son. 
And the problem with that is we, we ignore the entire ancient context of sacrifice. Remember, animal sacrifice in that culture was normal. And really, that's what this story is about. You even see that later in verse 7. They're traveling and Abraham and Isaac are going together. And look at what Isaac says. Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac is probably a teenager here, and, and you see, he's not confused about the fact that they're going to sacrifice an animal. He's just confused about where's the animal, right? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. You see, people in the ancient world would often give an animal from their flock, as an offering or a gift to God. In fact, the Hebrew word that we translate as sacrifice literally means gift or offering. And so if I had uh, 20 new lambs that were born in our flock this year, then we might take one or two of those lambs and give them back to God out of gratitude, out of the sense that God gave all of this and blessed us in this way. And so we want to give one or two of them back to God. And in the ancient world, we would do that by literally killing this animal, and then burning the meat on a fire. Sometimes the meat was set aside and some of it was eaten as part of a celebration, and sometimes it wasn't. Now, if slaughtering an animal sounds cruel and barbaric to us, we should remember that we slaughter more animals today in our own modern culture in more cruel and inhuman and barbaric ways than ancient cultures ever did. You just don't do it with your hands anymore. I don't do it with my hands anymore. We pay factory farms to do it on a massive industrial scale for us. What they did in the ancient world was actually way less barbaric than what we do today. And so this context is really important. We have to keep that In mind, God is asking Abraham to bring a gift to him in the most normal way that God could ask someone to bring a gift in their culture. God never would have said, hey, can you go down to Target and buy me something and wrap it up and give it to me? Like that would be the way we give gifts in our culture, but we can't put that on them. We have to understand how they gave gifts in their culture. Now, human sacrifice is admittedly more rare in the ancient world. There were some cultures that practiced human sacrifice. Uh, Later in Israel's history, there were even some of the nations around them, like Babylon, that sometimes practiced human sacrifice. And the Israelites even did it sometimes. And God said not to do that. I told you not to do that. And so while it might have surprised Abraham that God was asking him to sacrifice his own son, it wouldn't have been as shocking or as horrifying or as rare as it sounds to us. And again, before we criticize them for being so barbaric, before we boast so much and how far we've come because we would never practice human sacrifice in our own modern culture, let's not forget how many millions of men and women that we have sent to war 
in our own country in the last hundred years or so? How many times our government has asked parents to sacrifice their sons and daughters for causes that they usually don't understand, for causes that are sometimes utter failures, like in Vietnam, right? How many parents have willingly sent sons and daughters to shed their blood? And how when we talk about this, we use the word sacrifice in the most honorable and praiseworthy and laudable way. And do you see that we can't uphold and celebrate on one hand the sacrifice of blood that we are willing to make for very questionable political purposes and then come to this story and call it murder or child abuse as if what they're doing is so much more wrong than what we're doing. We can't lose sight of the broader context of what's going on in this story. Here's a second important context, and that's the context of relationship. Relationship, the long and deep relationship that Abraham and God had together. A relationship that that God has been cultivating with Abraham for some 40 or 50 years at this point. I think sometimes we read this story as if God just was walking along one day and he just picked this random guy named Abraham off the street and he decided to ask this terrible thing of this guy that he's never met, right? As if this is Abraham's first encounter with God, but that's not the case at all. Abraham has been walking with God for decades. Abraham has been learning to trust God for decades Abraham has seen and experienced so many things that God has done, right? Abraham has questioned God in the past and God has responded. Abraham has doubted God in the past and God has surprised him. Abraham has has obeyed God in the past and God has blessed that. Abraham's even stumbled. He's failed. He's he's not trusted in God before. He's, He's screwed up and yet God has stuck with him. God has been patient. God has still loved him. God has continued to be faithful to Abraham even when Abraham's not faithful to God. It's, it's a little bit like a marriage, right? It's this long relationship between God and Abraham, and they've been navigating it for many years, and there's, there's ups and there's downs. There's, there's easy times, and there's difficult times, and and over the course of walking through so many circumstances together, their relationship has deepened, it's grown. And in fact, the most significant thing that comes out of the relationship between Abraham and God is what? It's a son, Isaac. That's the fruit of this relationship, something that Abraham never thought was possible. I can't have children. We can't have children. And yet God miraculously, in the course of this relationship, makes it possible. And so now God is saying, I want you to take the very thing that I gave you, the fruit of this relationship, and I want you to trust me with it. And it's not an easy request. But I don't know that it's It's as far removed from our lives as we think, especially for parents, right? I remember talking to some parents who were a part of our congregation uh, several years ago, and and at that time, they had kids who had grown up, and their kids were uh, late teens, early 20s. And I remember them saying how difficult it was in that season, because their kids were now beginning to make choices that they could not control. Their kids were beginning to, to do things that they might not have 
chosen themselves. In fact, their kids were even beginning to put themselves in dangerous situations. And they couldn't do anything about it. And I remember them saying that there was this great loss, this sense of of loss, of of surrender, of having to, to let go, of having to release their kids fully into God's hands. And this sense that it would have been impossible for them to do that if they hadn't had to do that in smaller and less risky, but no less significant ways for years and years and years as their kids grew up. And it was this deepened sense of trusting in God. It was a relationship forged between them and God that allowed them when it was time to fully entrust their kids into God's hands to be able to do it. You see, the context of relationship here is so important. And it's not just Abraham's relationship with God. It's even our relationship with God as we hear and read the story. You see, this is not a story for someone who doesn't have a relationship with God. Right? This is not a story to convince somebody who does not believe in God that this is the kind of God you want to believe in, right? I mean, no outsider, no skeptic, no, no, no person who doesn't trust God in any form or fashion is going to read this story and say, that's the kind of God I want a relationship with, right? And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you're someone who does read this story and say, like, this is why I hate the Bible, and I would say, don't worry, this is why I hate the Bible too. Like it's, it is a hard story. But here's the good news. The Bible is not an advertisement for God. The Bible is not a slick marketing piece, like so many other things that are pushed in our face to get us to buy something that we don't really need. If it was, they would never have included stories like this. So what is the point of stories like this? Well, I love what theologian Ellen Davis, she's a theologian at Duke University, she says this, the point of this story is not to make people want to believe in Abraham's God, who is, of course, also Jesus' God and Father. Rather, this harrowing story exists to help people who already believe make sense of their most difficult experience when God seems to take back everything they have ever received at God's hand. The point is not to draw people in, but rather to help people who are already in stay in. Stay in relationship with the one true God even when their world turns upside down. That's the importance of the relationship in this story. Uh, There's one more significant context, and it's the context of what God is up to. There's actually a much bigger story going on in Abraham's life that, that he gets a glimpse into, but I don't think he realizes fully what God is up to. You see, at this point in Genesis, the world has come undone. 
That's what Genesis 1 through 11 is all about. It's about God creating this beautiful world. It's about God then entrusting the world and it's flourishing to humans to care for and be stewards of all of the world. It's about us choosing to reject God. It's about us choosing instead selfishness and arrogance and pride and violence. It's about choosing to reject God, choosing to reject each other, choosing to reject our creation and the very purposes and lies which God has given us. And all of this is told through stories that are familiar to us, right? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, a flood of judgment, a tower of human arrogance. But the bottom line is that by the time you get to Genesis 11, God decides he needs to rescue this world from our own self-destruction. But if you're going to rescue the entire world from its own self-destruction, where do you even start? Well, you have to start somewhere. And so he picks one person, a man named Abraham. And God decides he's going to restore faith and trust and relationship and blessing for the whole world. But he has to start by restoring faith and trust and relationship and blessing with this one man. And this man named Abraham will be the seed for what God is doing in the world. And literally, it will be through Abraham's seed that God will rescue the entire world. But it has to be a seed of trust and relationship. And so God stakes everything on Abraham. And so for 40 or 50 years, God has been patiently cultivating this relationship with Abraham. He's been, he's been faithful to Abraham. He's been nurturing the soil of it. He's been, he's been giving the nutrients. He's been giving the sun and the rain and all that the, the soil needs to, to make this relationship of faith grow with Abraham. But now he needs to know, does Abraham actually trust him? Does Abraham actually have faith in God? Not head faith. But does Abraham actually trust God? And that's the whole purpose of this test. God takes the very thing that is the fruit of this relationship, the very thing that he gave to Abraham, his son Isaac, the son that Abraham loves. This is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. Abraham loves his son. The son that represents Abraham's future, his kids, his family, his descendants, his legacy. A son that God loves. A son that represents God's future plans for the entire world. God is going to rescue and redeem and restore a relationship of trust with the entire world. And so Abraham, it's going to start with you. Do you trust me with this son that you love? Do you trust me with your future? Do you trust me with our future in the world? And I know it's going to be risky, and I know it's going to be hard, and I know it's going to require deep surrender on your part, but I need to know, do you trust me? That's what's going on in this story. Now, of course, we have to ask, what does it mean for us? What do we need to take away from this story? How does God's test of Abraham's trust, how would it apply to our lives? On on one hand, it's understandable that when we read it, we're initially shocked by what God is asking. 
It is also deeply unfair to the story to ignore the context, then to put ourselves in the story, and then to judge God for asking us something that he's never asked us to do. There is a specific context. There is an understanding of sacrifice that we don't often understand. There is a relationship of trust here that that we often ignore. There is a unique purpose for Abraham's life that is so much bigger than Abraham's life. And so what God is specifically asking of Abraham is singular. It's not something that God is asking of any of us. And yet, on the other hand, are we not all on journeys of faith and trust and relationship with God? And are we not all confronted with moments and seasons in our own lives where we have to let go, surrender, perhaps even give back to God people that he has given to us. Give back to God things that we have built our identity around. Perhaps even surrender dreams, hopes, plans we've made, a future that we have envisioned and that now we are clinging tightly to. Is there anything that you need to let go of today? Is there anything that is in your hands and and you feel like one by one the fingers are being pried out? Maybe it's just the circumstances that is opening, forcing you to open your hands. And is it possible that God could be even whispering, will you trust me with him? Will you trust me with her? Will you trust me with with this, will you be really willing to let go and surrender to me? Let me pray for us. God, we ask in this moment that if there are things in our lives that we need to surrender or that perhaps we are being forced to surrender, that you would give us the grace and the mercy and the courage we need to trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.